KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Now that the Israel Hamas war is front and center on the international stage, you could make the case there's already been one winner. Vladimir Putin. Ever since the Hamas terror attacks, Russia's war with Ukraine has been pushed to the back burner in the public eye. I think this has been in many ways a gift to Putin. This is exactly what he wants, right, is that now all the Western leaders are distracted. St. Joseph's University professors Dr. Melissa Chekars and Dr. Lisa Baglioni have analyzed the different stages of the Russia-Ukraine war for us, dating all the way back to when it started in February 2022. With the two-year anniversary of the invasion a few months away and a presidential election looming in Russia for Vladimir Putin, we get the latest on another high-stakes international conflict that doesn't seem to be going anywhere. In a moment where nothing is happening in this war, nothing major is changing, Putin's in a pretty good position. I'm Matt Leon, and this is KYW News Radio in depth, sponsored by your Delaware Valley Honda dealers. Make memories during happy Honda days. Today, Russia and Ukraine, where things stand and what two experts think could happen next. I'd like to ask both of you just kind of for your analysis of kind of where we are in this Russia Ukraine war, because This was something that was constantly in the headlines, top of the news blocks, and ever since the Israel-Hamas war broke out, it has disappeared, I feel like, from the headlines, and it is now something you have to search to find information on. So give us kind of your analysis of where we are. Melissa, I'll start with you. Well, I think what you just said is exactly true. So we're reaching, I mean, come February 2024, we'll be at the two-year mark of this war. And in many ways... We're at a stalemate here. Uh, I think the you know the summer counteroffensive didn't do as much as was hoped. The territories that Russia claimed uh, took from the very beginning are still under Russia's control. So we're talking about much of eastern Ukraine. So the Kherson Oblast, the Zaporozhia Oblast, Luhansk, and then of course already in 2014, Russia had Donetsk and Crimea. So in some sense, not a lot has changed. And I think that kind of, that doesn't make for flashy headlines, right? So if if Ukraine was taking territory back, if uh, we could see a splash on the map change, if we could see soldiers marching into Crimea and seizing it or blowing up the bridge that connects Crimea to Russia, that would make some headlines. In terms of what you said, as far as the Israeli-Hamas war goes, I think this has been in many ways a gift to Putin. Uh, this is exactly what he wants, right, is that now all the Western leaders are distracted and there are some really atrocious things happening that are grabbing our attention and should grab our attention. But it is unfortunate for the Ukrainians um, that then this is this is putting their war on the back burner. Lisa? Yeah, I certainly agree. And what Melissa said about the nature of the war, there is a stalemate, although the Ukrainian leadership does not want to use that language. There's been an argument uh, with the top general using, uh, coming close to using that language and the Ukrainian president being very upset about that. So we're starting to see politics there. I mean, there already was a movement within Congress that had been doubting whether it was wise to be funding Ukraine so much, whether we could support it. And this is a slog 
and it has and it has been much more difficult than the Ukrainians thought. The Russians have learned. You know, that's a really important message. You know, some people discounted what the Russian military would would be able to respond, and it, it has. It's responded and adapted. With this funding tied up, like what does that mean for Ukraine? Is are there ways that the Biden administration could still funnel equipment and ammunition or whatever without, you know, the House or Congress signing off on it? Or is the spigot completely turned off? If you could kind of dig into that, Melissa, I'll start with you. Yeah, I think, I mean, already, I believe it was Wednesday that another 175 million were allocated for weapons right now. So there is still some money left that's, that's, that's going to Ukraine. Um, and I think exactly what you're saying that is, is possible to be moving money around. You know, Europe really has also started to pay a lot more. And, and I think what I've read is that Europe is even maybe giving Ukraine more money and collectively, right? So this is not one country in Europe, but giving more money to Ukraine than even the United States. And, and of course, it's political for Biden to say that if if we, if we don't get this package and it's his package, then Putin's going to march into Ukraine and then it's going to march into a NATO country and we're all going to be sorry. So, of course, that's that's he's going to make this as dramatic as possible. But it is important. <laughs> Nevertheless, it's really important. It's a lot of money. And Ukraine does need that in order to fight Russia. It just absolutely needs the weapons and it needs the money or it's it's not going to make it. And I think as as Lisa was saying earlier, you know, this really is a slog. We don't know where this is going to end. And so Ukraine needs this. Yeah, I would say listening to military analysts, they're hoping that next year the Ukrainians hang on. It's like we're just going to hang on for a year. And in that year, the goal is to enhance training and to give the soldiers a rest. Russia has more economic capacity, more human capacity, and we need to hold on. And the hope is that we can hold on and regroup. And the answer is not higher tech weaponry. It's better training and the ability to do what's called combined arms efforts and and then hoping that the Russians also have their own challenges in maintaining, even though they have more money, they have more humans, but the ultimately the morale could go. Now, one thing you're seeing in Russia, I know Melissa knows this, is that the big cities, the places where there are prominent Russians who are doing well, they're not the ones who are being sent to fight. It is the people from the minority communities, as you know, people from prisons, and and those people are expendable. Putin, uh, who will be facing election this spring, but depending on how those moms and wives, how much they, they get out there and how much they're worried, it's, it's a break on what he can do. And you mentioned election, and I'll put that in air quotes when it comes to this. Like, could anything happen? In this election that's upcoming, that could move the needle? It's not going to depose Putin, but something that could send a message, Lisa? Well, elections are highly managed. <laughs> and, and usually the only, only candidates that can run are candidates that are basically supportive 
of Putin or from parties that are that are have been allied with his party or or or, or take only a slightly critical stand. And then the big point of the election it is to get voters out to support Putin as well as to show the world and and Russians that that level of support is strong. So traditionally what has happened um, is that commands come out about how, what the percentage of his victory needs to be, who is going to guarantee what. So it, it's still, it, meaning which regional leaders will achieve what, and you can see how regional leaders are trying to position themselves as Putin's best friend, right, out in. So it's very much a political act, in some ways, national coronation to show the all Russians that look how popular he is and it helps to dampen any dissent. It's also a really important way for elites to communicate their levels of support and in a sense, their levels of dependency and their so and their levels of willingness to go along, which is can have I think over time can have a double-edged sword, but but we'll it's not that time. We will return to our conversation about the Russia-Ukraine war in just a moment. But right now, it's the holiday season, folks, and the holidays mean different things to everyone. But whatever the holidays mean to you, get the most out of it in a new vehicle from our friends at Honda. Whether it's traveling to the holiday family dinner in a spacious, efficient Accord hybrid or heading to a hike to burn it off in a powerful, adventure-ready CRV hybrid, your holiday adventure awaits with a new Honda during Happy Honda Days. Contact your local Honda dealer today. And now we return to our conversation about the Russia-Ukraine war with Professor of Political Science at St. Joseph's University, Dr. Lisa Baglioni, and Professor of History at St. Joseph's University, Dr. Melissa Chekars. We've probably had six, seven conversations about this over the course of the war. And one of the questions I would always ask is, like, what's the status of Putin? How powerful is he? Because at the beginning, there would be all these stories of, oh, maybe this set of oligarchs might turn on him or, you know, this could happen. I feel like the last six, eight months and a lot of this is probably because a lot of this has gotten pushed out of the headlines where you're not getting those secondary and tertiary stories that were much more mainstream before. But. It seems like he's kind of back to where he was as far as firmly entrenched, popular support, actually reaching out to other countries, you know, things like that. Am I misreading it or are we kind of back to where we were day one as far as where Putin's power lays? I agree with you. I think we are kind of back to where we were. So I would say the most, I mean, you know, there's always been a group in Russia, maybe 15, 20 percent, hard to know, who have been opposed to this war. And then there's been kind of a group in Russia, maybe 15 to 20 percent, who have absolutely sworn allegiance to Putin and will do whatever he says and, and support him 100 percent. And then there's kind of this middle group, right? If you look sort of at the beginning of the war, the middle group had a kind of wait and see attitude. OK, maybe it's true. Maybe, you know, what's going on here? And then there's always a little bit of patriotism that rises whenever there's a war. There's tend to be kind of, you know, Let's hunker down and support our country and come together. And then I would say there were sort of two moments in Russia where we saw that dip. 
The first is the the September 2022 mobilization, where 300,000 people were mobilized. And for the average person, it suddenly felt like, wait a minute, what? My husband could be drafted? My son? My cousin? Right? Or myself? And that was a moment where we really saw Putin's popularity dip. The Prigozhin crisis, of course, of last summer of 2023, where Prigozhin staged, the leader of the Wagner group staged uh, as sort of a rebellion, a military rebellion, uh, and he started to march on Moscow. And that looked like a moment that, wow, this could be a serious crisis for Putin. But Putin has survived both of, I think, these two very serious moments, and he's learned a lot from that, right? Now he is reining in the military a little better. He's very careful with the Wagner group. They're mostly working in Africa at the moment. He's taken over some of the things that the Wagner group was in charge of. So as Lisa mentioned, continuing the use of prisoners um, and recruiting prisoners to fight on the front. Now the Russian armed forces are taking over that recruitment, not allowing the Wagner group to do that anymore. And then I think in terms of mobilization, he's definitely not going to do another large mobilization that's going to anger people and, and make people afraid again. And certainly not before the election, right? So he's, there's not going to be any great mobilization before the election. So I think instead, he's going to continue to kind of draw on the same sort of tactics, picking up people from who are very poor. So the minorities of Russia, taking recruits from rural regions, people who need the money, people who are going to be attracted by the, sa- the higher salaries, and then, you know, kind of relying on his, his base to kind of sort of continue the support and not do anything that's going to rock the boat before the March 2024 elections. Lastly, I would just say that I think we'll see what happens with that. He does need to mobilize. Mobilize again. I mean, he's. This is we're in a moment where nothing is happening in this war. Nothing major is changing, and in order to change that, it may need to be that Russia is going to have to do another large mobilization. But again, I don't think that will come for a while yet. So it's so at the moment, I think Putin's in a pretty good position. Then there's this other element of of Putin and his his goal of maintaining his power that might surprise you and that is perhaps off most people's radar screens. At the end of November, the legislature passed a law banning the LGBTQ international movement. And then I think it was last weekend, there were raids on several on several clubs in St. Petersburg and Moscow. And you might think, what? why does that have anything to do with this? What this does is Putin has been, since 2012, very vocally a culture warrior. If he's lost the ability in many ways to say to his, to Russians, that I am improving your standard of living, right? That was his message of the early, of the 2000s, of the aughts. And in the 2010s, he lost that ability. But what he did start to say is, I will enhance your pride and how I'm dealing with the West and throwing my weight around. And also, I am going to support your traditional values versus that crazy stuff coming out of the West that's coming from feminists, that's co- coming from queer activists. And this is another, to me, another way he's reaching into recent, to sentiments that will maintain his popularity. And then the last thing I would say is don't, don't underestimate how emboldened and happy Putin likely is by what's going on in the United States. With the 
rise of Trump, Trump's very, very strong popularity among Republicans and among the electorate at large, the transformation of the who the leadership is in the Republican House, he can feel like I'm in the driver's seat here. I need to wait it out for 2024 and things could really go my way. And then as Melissa alluded to, or you alluded to, Putin is in, is in um, the Middle East right now. He ha- he is on a national, I mean, on a, on a global trip. He is being welcomed for some strange reason, despite the Soviet Union and Russia having a very strong imperial and colonial heritage. The global South sees it for, for various reasons as the anti-colonial power where the U.S. is the colonial power. And, um, and he has that wellspring of support too throughout the world. And to wrap up, I'd like to ask each of you what you're kind of looking for here over the next couple months. What are some things that we should keep an eye on that might help us determine what direction things are going to go? Melissa, I'll start with you. Yeah, I think keeping an eye on Putin is always interesting. You know, I I agree with Lisa where he's headed, where he's going. He can't travel to a lot of any country that's a member of the International Criminal Court because they are supposed to extradite him for war crimes. So I think watching moving forward, he he will announce um, he's announced that he's going to have a press conference on December 14th, where he will state that he officially is running for president. He hasn't even actually said that yet. So I think that'll be interesting to see what exactly he says at that moment and then what sorts of things he says in his political campaign and running for president. I think, as you said, Matt, it's not a question of whether he'll win or not. He will certainly win, but it will be interesting to see what sort of rhetoric is coming out of him. Putin is is looking forward to perhaps a Republican faction that's going to be against the war in Ukraine and, and, and pull out for various reasons. And so Russia is looking to find words and, and uh, ideas that will help Americans say, wait a minute, we don't want to support this anymore. So how that will play out, I think will be interesting. I think moving into the winter in Ukraine is going to be difficult. It's very, very, very cold there. So how war will continue through the winter is always going to be tough. I think last winter, Russia attacked Ukraine's infrastructure and probably will do so at the same time, although Ukraine, I think, is better prepared in, in, in looking for that. And I think um, even Ukraine has started to think more about defense moving through the winter. And then I think what will happen in the spring will be really interesting if there's going to be another an attempt of an offensive on either side. At the moment, neither is really, you know, there's skirmishes along the border constantly. But where are where are we going to be headed moving forward will be really interesting. Lisa? I would agree. I, I- the other part of it's the press conference and he's doing the call-in show again, Melissa. So those are always interesting that he would have, he, he canceled it last year, but he would have this call-in where he takes, and it would, could go on for hours. And, and, and so it's very interesting that he's doing the call-in and the press conference on the same day. It's very important to look at rhetoric. It's very important to look at symbolism. You know, who, who is he addressing? Uh, those things uh, I'll be watching. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. <laughs>